If you have your own copy of God's Word, we're in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. So you can open up in your own copy, or you can follow along on the screen with us. We're in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Let's hear God's Word together today. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to, tra to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach uh, the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they, brought, and they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, I uh, echo Jorge's prayer for Nashville today, and for all those that are broken and burdened especially in the midst of tragedies. Got to think of those that have faced tornadoes and uh, hardships this week. God, we're, we're grateful for all the ways you protect us and provide for us. God, we know that um, your sovereignty is not called into question, uh, but we do wrestle and we do long for the day where we get to see your uh, perfect holiness and righteousness and perfect protection as it will be in the kingdom that is still to come. God, we get a glimpse of that in now, but we long for it uh, in full. So God, I pray for peace for those who are missing that, who are lacking peace. And I pray for your presence uh, to be felt in a mighty way for those who are missing it. God, we thank you that your presence is with us even now. God, thank you for the way your spirit uh, illuminates the scriptures, the same scriptures you inspired God, thank you that all these years later, God, we get to still read the same word and trust in the same spirit uh, who raises the dead, who changes hearts, who directs minds. And so, God, we pray that you would be at work among us, even now, as we uh, explain, uh, as we um, expose, as we um, magnify your word for what it truly is, your power with us. Lord, bless this day we share in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, I think it was 2021 or so, there was a, a movie that was released called Yes Day. They did not uh, invent the idea of a yes day, but they popularized it. And so it got a lot of attention a couple years ago. And uh, if, if you're familiar with the concept, the basic idea is that as parents, you know this, we spend so much of our time saying no, right? No, you can't jump on the bed. No, you can't have 20 pieces of candy. No, we're not going to the zoo. Know this, know that. Over and over again, we say no. So the idea of a yes day was to pick one day where parents agree that for one whole day, whatever the kids ask, the answer is yes. Now, before you freak out, there are some limits. <laughs> there are some rules. Uh, people have done this different ways. Usually there's a budget. That's important. There's a, a limit on the spending that can happen that day. Uh, other rules include things like nothing illegal, no physical harm, no, no, no harming property, other you know, basic ground rules. But aside from that, for one day, the kids ask for what they want and the parents obligate themselves to say yes. 
Uh, we did one of these a couple summers ago. Just, you know, it was, it was fun. We had a good time with it. Uh, the kids loved it. I think basically, don't tell my kids, I think Amber still basically planned the whole day. You know, just got the kids to ask for the things that we thought they would ask for. Anyway, uh, but it was fun. And um, yesterday is, is, this, is an example of delegated authority, is it not? Parents are in charge. We set the ground rules. We say how things go. But for this one day, we will delegate the decision-making to the kids, to let the kids decide how to, how to do it. But even that delegated authority comes with limitations and restrictions, does it not? It has the, 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 the kids have the authority. So if you, if you were just came across a family and you didn't know this was a, a special day and they're in the middle of this yes day, it looks like the kids are in charge. It looks like the kids are the ones calling all the shots, that they are the authority. But you don't know, if you, don't, if you just see them in that one snapshot moment, is that their authority is limited. It's limited by time, just one day, one 24-hour period. And it's limited by certain rules, like budgets or whatever ground rules the family has set up. It, it, and, it, and it actually serves the purpose of the parents' intentions all along, right? The parents' goal in a yes day, or as parents in general, we're trying to provide our families with a you know, fun environment. We want them to love their family. We want them to have a good time. And so really this, this idea, though the kids are making the decisions, is serving the purpose that the authority, the greater authority, the parents had in place all along. A couple weeks ago, we started on this section back in Mark 11, where we saw the religious rulers start with a series of questions they have for Jesus. And their first question was about his authority, where he got his authority, where it came from. And then after that, the three different groups that made up the initial group all take a turn asking a question. And they look very different. They're different subjects they bring up. Today, the question's about taxes. Next week, the Sadducees ask you about, about the resurrection. The week after that, the scribes ask about interpreting the law. These look like different subjects. However, in each case, Jesus is demonstrating His authority and God's authority over all of these things. So while the question specific here is about taxes and government and those kind of issues, the, the bigger picture is who's in charge? Who really has the authority? It looks like the kids have the authority, but who's really in charge? Does Caesar really have the right to demand these kinds of things from us? Can he really tax us? If so, is God really in charge? If Caesar's saying this and we feel like we have to oblige that? Jesus' answer is a little bit like a yes day. Caesar can do what he wants within these limits. Caesar has the authority within these boundaries, under this amount of time and, and these parameters. But ultimately, God's in charge. And ultimately, even Caesar is serving the purposes of the greater authority. God's accomplishing the purposes He intended all along. What's complicated for us and applicable to us is that we often have a hard time with layers of authority. When, there, when there's layers, when there's an immediate boss and then a boss above a boss, and maybe, depending on your organization, maybe it keeps going, but we have a hard time with, with seeing somebody else being in charge, primarily, of course, because we want to be in charge. We like the authority to be with us. We want to be the ones that make the decision. And we're okay with a government or a boss or somebody else as long as they're doing the things we want. But then when they're not doing the things we want, then we just say, oh, there shouldn't be that person or that government or that person, that 
uh, structure over me. We don't like that. And it especially gets complicated when there's layers. When we see one here that's doing this, and we think they should be going this way, it gets complicated, and we don't like that. Jesus leaves no doubt for us about who has the ultimate authority over all things, and therefore, who is deserving of our ultimate allegiance. There is a place of honor and respect for authority, and there is a place of ultimate allegiance to the Lord. Today's passage starts with an attempt, like all these in this series do, with a trying to trap Jesus, specific here to this question of taxes. Verse 14, they ask, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now this may be a familiar passage to you. This, this, the, Jesus' amazing answer of render unto Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. That is a, 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 a famous kind of a, almost proverbial saying of Jesus. So many people may remember this. But before we get to that, it's worth pausing and kind of diving into this, this tax a little bit more to see the, the weight of what was in the balance by this question. The, the Jewish people for the last, at, at this point, as of the first century, for the last 500 years or so, have been captive to somebody else for a while. For 500 years, they have not had the full sovereignty over their nation like they did back under King David and Solomon and so many others. About 63 years before Christ, Rome became the new guy in charge. And when Rome showed up to take over somebody else, one of the ways they proved their authority is they demanded taxes be paid. And every time taxes are demanded, people hate it. <laughs> that is a universal thing across all cult cultures and places and times. We hate taxes, and the Jewish people were not any different. They hated it, and they hated this sp specific tax that gets addressed right here. The tax they're talking about was a poll tax or a census tax first started about six years after Christ, so 6 AD, in relation to a, to a census, and the, the payment that was required was a denarius, which was about a day's wage. So quick do math on your, how much you make in an hour and then times it by eight-ish. That's about how much. So, you know, maybe this, this coin was $100, $250, something. That, that's, that's a pretty good-sized tax. A pretty nice coin, too, by the way. One coin represents a whole day's wage. But anyway, the coin that they're asking for had the image, uh, the, the, the depiction of, the, the current Caesar, Tiberius Caesar on it, and the writing on the front side of the corn said, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back side of it, it called that guy the high priest or the chief priest. So perhaps you can understand that for the Jewish people, this tax was very offensive. For one, it's taxes. Nobody likes taxes. But two, this, this coin itself Many of the devout Jewish people saw just, just holding it, just touching it, using it, a form of blasphemy. Because the coin wasn't just like our coin that just represents some old president somewhere. This coin was saying this guy, the guy whose depiction is on this coin, he is the son of God. And he is the mediator, the high priest between us and the divine. And he is the representative of this pagan religion with all these polytheistic uh, all these different gods and goddesses all across different places and all the awful practices in the Roman world that went along with that. There was not a separation between government and religion in the Roman world. It was all one. He was the president. He was the prime minister. He was the chief priest. He was all those things. Caesar represented all kinds of things that were anti-Jewish, anti-Bible, anti-the one true God. And this coin and this tax 
came to represent a lot of those things. So much so that in the very year that it was implemented, we know from another historian outside of the Bible named Josephus, in the year 6 AD, the year they, they started this poll, this, this poll tax, the census tax, a Jewish man named Judas of Galilee led a revolt against the Roman government. A whole revolt against it. The Roman government squashed it pretty quickly, but the remnant of that revolt developed into a group known as the Zealots. Throughout the New Testament, there's a couple places you hear of the Zealots. And the Zealots were anti-Rome. They could not stand this, this, the fact that Rome occupied Israel. That movement gross, grew so much that in the year 66 AD, they started a new revolt. And the squishing of that revolt included the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So the destruction of the temple, you really could point all the way back to this one tax of this one coin with this guy, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, and the image of him on that, that coin. So this was about a lot more than just a simple tax. All that to say, this was a big deal. And the Jews were really offended that they had to pay this tax. Maybe in some ways, probably even more so, but we, we may compare it to something like the British Empire's tax on tea for the American colonies back when we were just uh, a set of colonies. You know that uh, in Boston, they decided to throw a whole bunch of it into the ocean. We know it as the Boston Tea Party as this way of rebelling against uh, the, this taxation. And of course, it was about more than just the tax they had to pay on the tea. It was about the authority and all those kind of taxes led to the American Revolution and how we have a nation. So take that kind of temper or that kind of, that kind of uh, mindset and add on to it the fact that the whole pagan religion stuff of the Roman world, you get the idea. It was a big deal. So here's Jesus. And he's got to answer the question in Jerusalem in front of everybody, which way is it going to be, Jesus? Pay the tax? Don't pay the tax. And you can see how he's going to get in trouble either way. If his answer is yes, pay the tax, then all the Jewish, the devout Jewish people around him were going to be offended. For one, for even touching the coin. But for two, it sounded like a pro-Roman occupation. Jesus, we're going to pay the tax. You like this pagan Roman evil empire ruling over us? You're going to give them your money? How could you do that? Okay, well, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, then the authorities are right there around. All the pro-Rome people are going to hear that, and they're going to hear this as a form of rebellion and insurrection. Which way is it going to go? Yes, offend the Jewish people, get ostracized. No, Get, get killed by the Romans. Of course, both those things happen by the end of the week, but, you know, you get the point. The group trying to trap him, interestingly enough, we read, are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Pharisees, Jewish, religious people, so anti-Rome group of people. The Herodians were a wealthier group of Jews who liked Herod, which was the Roman ruler in the northern part, and so they were pro-Rome. These two groups of people only show up together a couple times in the Bible, both times they are attacking Jesus. It seems like they had nothing in common except they hated Jesus. They were on different sides of the Rome debate, but neither one of them liked Jesus. And they're trying to trap him into this decision. They start their trap with flattery. Jesus calls them hypocrites, so they probably didn't believe any of the things they said. Interestingly, they were all true things. We read in verse 14, they said, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Interesting to start a question, a trap with, hey, you're not swayed by people, <laughs> but let me try to sway you and make you answer it. Anyway, that was beyond the point. 
So they attempt to butter him up, maybe trying to loosen his lips, trying to just, you know, let him speak, speak freely. And they ask him the question, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? Which way is it going to go? So he calls them hypocrites. He says, I'm not walking in your trap. And then he does something amazing. He doesn't have one of the coins. He doesn't have one. So he says, will you bring me one? Will you show me one? This group, some of which would have thought it was blasphemous to even touch one, somehow they're able to produce one. So who knows what that means, what he meant by that. But he asked then about the likeness on it, about whose image it was and whose inscription it was, which are both clear things. Caesar, this looks like Caesar. These are words about Caesar, declaring that he is God, he's the Son of God. And then he gives a masterful two-part reply. And those are our two points today. The second part is clearly the main point. But before you get to that one, don't, don't hurry past it to skip over the first one. Amazingly, boldly, Jesus answers their question, which sometimes is a little bit rare for Jesus. He asks a lot of questions, and sometimes you don't know if he really answered the question. This one, he, he answers it pretty clearly. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In, order, in other words, pay the tax. You should pay the tax. Of course, he's going to raise it to a whole new level by saying, give to God the things that are God's. But he starts with, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There's a lesson there in what we should and don't give to Caesar. He says, simply pay it, render it. The same word render could also mean to restore it to its original possessor. Restore to the one who had it in the first place. Jesus says, that coin, it came from Caesar. So to Caesar it should go. Give it right back to him. Give government its due. That's, his, that's his, the, the idea. The government, or you could say your boss, or the authorities, or whoever is in charge, has a certain level of responsibility, a certain level of God-given sovereignty over a certain way. And so if the laws of the land obligate this certain type of, uh, of obligation, then you should do that thing, Jesus is saying. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar. That's, of course, relevant to us in a very direct way this month, and I haven't finished my taxes either. So here's your note and reminder. By the middle of the month, you've got to finish your taxes. But he's doing a lot more than just answering a tax question. For one, he's not siding with the zealots who said all forms of non-Jewish government or non-God-honoring government are illegitimate. This is a pretty remarkable statement for Jesus to make. He's saying there is a legitimate form of government that is not a theocracy, a, a God-honoring or God-focused form of government. Many people of that time thought if, you're, if the king on the throne is not worshiping God, if he's not reading the, what we call the Old Testament, if he's not keeping the laws of the Bible, then he's illegitimate and needs to be overthrown. And if we need to take dramatic measures to do so, we should do it. And Jesus says to that, no. It's okay. There's a, a place and a time to pay Caesar the form of obligation that he asked for, in this case, taxes. Jesus affirmed a category that people, many people at his time didn't believe in, a legitimate, secular, human government. And according to Jesus, not all governments need to be Christian in order to be legitimate and need to be honored with paying Taxes. That was almost shocking. I mean, it was. To a lot of people, it was a very shocking thing for Jesus to say, especially given some of the things that Rome did with the taxes, like crucify him. How did that happen? Based on tax money, paying for soldiers who would later crucify him. 
This is a pretty dramatic thing for him to say. Of course, Jesus did not endorse all the things that Rome did. They weren't, he wasn't supporting crucifixion and all the cult prostitution and all the kinds of evil pagan worship that was going on. But he is saying there's a place of submitting to authority. The New Testament develops this. You can go a lot further into Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, read a lot more about that. And Christians for the last 2,000 years have had to wrestle with, in every culture and every time and every place, what does that submission look like? Because there is absolutely a place to raise a voice and say this isn't okay and to speak up and to take different steps. And so there's a whole long history, 2,000 years of culture and language, people all around the world trying to figure out as Christians, how do we live with a secular government? But suffice it to say for our passage, Jesus allows a space for that. And that's a good reminder for us. We are called to give government its due. The law of the land says, owe this tax. Jesus says, pay the tax. But notice what he is not saying. He says, pay the tax, and that's where he stops. That's what you do. You, you pay the tax. But there's a greater authority and a greater level of allegiance above that government. The law requires this, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But he does not say, give everything to Caesar. He says, give everything to God. Caesar does not get the ultimate allegiance. He does not get the ultimate form of devotion. We can see that distinction because of the way he ordered, he words the second part of this. He raises it to a different level. Give to Caesar the things that Caesar's. But what does he say we give to God? Verse 17, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God's. What does it mean to render to God the things that are God? What belongs to God? Everything. Everything belongs to God. Psalm 50, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the birds and everything that moves on the fields. It all belongs to God. But I want to push, just, uh, that, that is, that's absolutely true, and I want you to see that in a, a little more precise and deeper way than just saying generally everything. In verse 16, Jesus had asked the group about whose image was on that coin. Remember? The likeness. The ESV uses the word likeness. Literally, it's the word image. Caesar put his image on a coin, so it should be given to Caesar. What did God put his image on? You and me. The same word used for likeness or image in Mark 12, 17 is the same word used in the Greek version of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 when, Jesus, when God said God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Give to Caesar that which is made in his image, this coin. Give to God that which is made in his image, namely your very self. To give God God's stuff, God's things, is to give God our very selves. Or more simply, maybe, give God your all. Give God your all. We are made in the image of God. We are image bearers. We are representatives of the divine image wherever we go. Caesar has made coins. God has made humanity. Caesar gets the coins. God gets us. That's the distinction Jesus makes. Do you see how Caesar is limited then? You get one little coin out of his pocket. Okay, it was a pretty good-sized coin, apparently, $200 coin or whatever. But still, in the spectrum of our life and who we are, all Caesar gets is the coin. God gets your very 
being. We belong to God because we were created by God. Render, that word to return to its original possessor. Who originally possessed you? Who created you? Who formed you? God did. Psalm 139, he knit you together in your mother's womb. God has been intricately involved in the very minute details of your life from the moment of your conception and in reality from the foundation of the world. Because he had a plan for exactly when you would be created and he has had his fingers involved in every step along the way. He created you. And he didn't even delegate that like I'm sure Caesar did. Caesar was not in some mint somewhere forming these little things in his image. God has his hands intricately involved in the creation of you, mind, body, and soul. God is responsible for your lives. And so we owe him our lives. We owe him everything. It all came from him, and so it was all his. And God has done more than just create you in his image. For all those who believe in Jesus Christ, he has also redeemed us. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about you are not your own, for you were bought. You were purchased with a price, and a very high price at that. The price of the Son of God, the blood that was shed for you and for me of Jesus Christ. That is what it took to purchase us. We have been both created and redeemed by God. We are doubly His. A year, year or two ago during our Camp Kidfinity, one of our teachers explained redemption, that purchasing, like this. She said, imagine a kid who is, who's taken great lengths to build a toy sailboat. And he takes it out to the pond and he is enjoying his creation. He's enjoying what he has made. But the wind comes along and, and swipes the, the toy sailboat away and he loses it. It gets lost in the wind and the storm. A few days later, a, a man who is a toy store owner finds this, this beautifully crafted sailboat alongside the, the, the pond. And so he comes and he cleans it up and he decides to sell it in his toy store. The little boy happens to come into this toy store and see his own boat that's been there. And he is so excited that, he, that to see it again, he buys it. He buys his own boat. We could say that boat is doubly his. He both created it and he purchased it. And so Christ has done for you. He has knit you together. He formed you in your mother's womb. And then when you were blown away by the storms of your own sin and the destruction we all face, Jesus said, I'm going to pay for you anyway. And he comes and he redeems us on the cross. All of who you are, all of who you are belongs to Christ. Because he created you and if you believe in him, he also redeemed you. You are his and you belong to Christ. The culture that we are, are swimming in cannot stand the idea of submitting to God as, we, as belonging to Him. The air we breathe, the water we swim in, says you are the master of your own soul. You decide what's best for you. You decide what you want to do. And then you do that. The Bible could not be any more, uh, could not disagree any more with that. So much so that the writers of the New Testament go so far as to call themselves slaves to God. Do you know that? We very understandably, as Americans, uh, when we hear the word slavery, we think of the awful, horrendous practice in our nation's history of taking captive millions of people just based on their race and abusing them for hundreds of years. The New Testament, of course, is against that. That's a terrible thing. 
In the olden days, the ancient times, there was a period of slavery. The ESV and others choose to use words like bondservant to try to distinguish between what the you know, American world and, and other Western countries did and what was happening in the ancient world. And that it is an important distinction. And at the same time, don't lose what is meant by this word in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament. That this person was owned. You belonged to God, to, to somebody. To be a, 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 a doulos, a, a slave, a servant, means you belonged to somebody. And Paul introduces himself in the book of, the Roman, book of Romans as Paul, a slave or servant of Christ Jesus. And he's not the only one. So does James. So does Jude. Over and over again, these disciples of Jesus Christ say, I, I know him and I belong to him. My whole life, not just a little bit of me, all of me belongs to him. That's what Jesus is talking about. Give to Caesar the coin, but you, your very core of your being and who you are, all of you belongs to God. That is a repeated message throughout the New Testament and multiple times right here in Mark chapter 12. Our memory verse that we'll get to in a couple weeks, Mark 12, 30 and 31, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A little bit later in the chapter, we read of a, little, uh, of a woman who is poor, and she comes and makes an offering, and she gives two small copper coins, and we learn it was all she had to live on. To be a disciple, to be a Christ follower, is not to give a portion of our lives to God. It is to give all of ourselves to Him. He, he's, he owns it all. It all belongs to Him. Not part, not most, not some, not a majority, an all, all of us. So you can see the distinction between how we relate to God and how we relate to Caesar or your boss or your work or whatever other kind of human authority you may face. Caesar, boss, anybody, they get their due. We respect them. We give them what they are owed, even if they are wicked. And yet, our highest allegiance, who we are, goes to God. God gets our all. What does that, what does that really look like? I, I think probably as Christians... If you've grown up around the church, that we, we have taught some really good things, but in some ways we may have gotten uh, sidetracked from, from the ultimate things. For example, I highly encourage you to come to church. That's a good idea. You should come to church often, every week if you can. But the, the, the temptation could be to say, you know, this is the time I give to God. You know what? I'm really ambitious. I'll come at not even just 9.30, I'll come at 9. And I'll be one of the last ones to leave. It'll be noon before I'll, I'll give God three hours of my Sunday morning. And the rest of the, my week is about me. Do you see the temptation there? We, we can focus on this is the holy time. This is church time. I give God this part of my time. Or take it just to our daily lives. I highly encourage you to spend some of the first hours of your morning with the Lord in devotional time. That is a really important time. And at the same time, there could be a temptation to say, yep, read my Bible, prayed, closed my books. Now I'm going to spend the rest of my day doing what I want to do. That is not a Christian attitude. And nobody says it that way, of course. But the temptation can be, I give God this section of my time. The rest of it is about something else. All of our day belongs to God. Not just the first hours of your week or the first 30 minutes of your day. It all belongs to God. We are called to continue in our relationship with Him in every moment of the day, not just a few moments. So think about that in a very specific way. What, 
What are you trying to accomplish? What is your goal? Who are you trying to serve? What, what is the focus of your heart during your commute? <laughs> during your lunch break? When you're sitting in car line waiting for your kids? When, you, when you're figuring out what you're going to do for your evening activities and, and how you're going to spend your time? When you're on the ball field? When you're, when you're doing it, whatever it is that takes a lot of your time, what is the purpose of that time? Is it to glorify God? That's what it should be. It's not that we're all called to be monks and go spend every moment of our day studying the Bible and just keeping that all to ourselves. You should study the Bible. I, I don't know many people who are tempted to study the Bible too much, so don't hear me warning against that. But take that, take the time you have with the Lord and continue. Don't, don't leave God here. He, he's everywhere anyway, but you know, don't leave Him here. Don't leave Him at your table studying the Bible in the morning. Take Him with you. He wants to go with you. He wants to spend time with you. Our lives are not sectioned off where this is the God time and that's not God time. God is in all moments of our lives. Or we take a similar approach when it comes to money, do we not? Maybe if you grew up in church or around church, you've heard the concept of a, a tithe. Similar to, to the way we think about our, our devotions, it's a, it's a good idea. Maybe even the, we talk about first fruits. Tithe was an Old Testament percentage, a 10% percentage given back to the temple, whether it be in money or in produce or whatever the harvest was. And it's a good idea. And we have carried that idea, many people have, in their Christian discipleship. They say, hey, I'm going to give 10% directly to the church, to uh, the Lord, in a very direct way. However, just like our time, we could then say, hey, I checked the box with God, and now the other 90% of what I have is all about me and doing what I want to do with it. I hope you can see that this is not God's heart. God does not want us to just throw something at God, even if it's a big thing, and say, yeah, this is just to appease God, and now I'm going to do what I want to do. God calls us to be good stewards of 100% of His money that He has given to us. All of it is His. It's all going back to Him. We just have it for a little while. What are we doing with all of it? Not just a certain percentage of it. If we are not sacrificial givers, we probably aren't honoring God. That sacrifice probably looks different for different people. But where is your heart? Can you see your heart reflected in the way you spend your money? Is all of it about stewarding God's money for God's glory among all nations? How are we stewarding what we have? Take your job, your career, what you do. Why, why do you do the things that you do? Why do you devote your time and energy to that? To make a paycheck, to pay the bills, to feed the family, of course, yes. But why? What's the purpose of it all? Is your, is your, your God time before and after work? But at work, I'm just, I just gotta, this is just what I gotta do. No. God, God has given you a job, as, as frustrating as it may be. Or maybe He's given you a season without a job, and you're frustrated about that. But what we do with all of our time, how we spend our energy and our efforts from beginning to end of our day and every day, is about glorifying God. We give God our all. Ephesians 6 addresses somebody that the culture would have thought would have been the lowest of low, the literal servants, not like just Paul and James and Jude were calling themselves metaphorically servants, slaves of Christ. Ephesians 6 addresses those people, and he says, Serve, have a sincere heart, work with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
these people who had the lowest of job in the culture, he says the way you work, not, not, just, not just your testimony, but the way you do your work is a testimony to those around you. The quality of your work is a reflection of the God you serve. Not just the words you use. Yes, you should, your words should be Christ-like. But what are you doing in your job? Does it reflect an almighty God who is deserving of everything that you have? The way you live your life, the way you spend your time, the way you work, the way you do the things that you do, the way you spend your money, it's all a reflection of God. You could keep making example after example, but I hope you get the idea that there is no section, no portion of our lives we should be hiding from God and say, this is mine. All of it is to God's. It all is about honoring Him. And it's up to your discernment with the Lord to figure out what does that look like? Where does it go? How do we honor God in everything? Ligon, very, when we were talking through this passage, very helpfully pointed out to me that just as Jesus called them to give all, He called His disciples, those listening to this, Render to the Lord the things of the Lord's. That's everything. Jesus himself lived that out just a few days later, did he not? He didn't hold back anything, including his own life. He was willing to lay down his life. He was willing to give it all up. And the way that Jesus is described for us in the Bible is that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who reflects God's glory perfectly the way we were all intended to do, being created in his image. And now by God's work, what God's doing in us is He is conforming us to the image of Christ. We are meant to be image bearers, and the way we do that is we look more like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He gave it all away. He gave it all away. He gave His entire life. He turned it all in. He rendered it all to God because it was all His anyway. He served God with everything. Verse 17, the very end of it, says the people marveled at Him. They marveled at Him. They were trying to trap Him. And they failed. Jesus stumped him. And they went, wow. But you know what? That's not enough. Because you know what happens right after that? Those people just move out of the way and let somebody else come test Jesus. They didn't follow him. Marveling is not enough. Jesus doesn't call you just to say, wow, he's a great teacher. Wow, what an impressive person. He calls us to say, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. Give to the authorities, give to the government, give to your boss, give the things to those around you, respect and honor and taxes and the things that they are due. But you and I, we all serve a higher authority. We serve the Lord our God. He is deserving of all our allegiance, all our praise, every moment of our lives. Give God your all.